to the Batmobile. Let's go. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger. Ready to move out. Holy smokes, Batman. It's Gaggle of Geeks on 2SER. Sweet sound of geese honking. <laughs> this is Gaggle of Geeks. And my friend here, Maria Lewis, is giving me very strange looks. I haven't heard the geese in a minute or whatever. I mean, it's cool. I'm down with it. I get it. Gaggle. Sweet. Makes sense. Makes sense. This is Gaggle of Geeks, a 2SR podcast all about all things pop and geek culture. My name is Sophie. I'm your host. And also joining me in a special guest co-host is Maria. Hello, <sighs> Maria. It's been so long now. A bit of back history for people who don't know. Yeah, uh, tell them our origin story. <laughs> Action Comics number one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. We founded this segment back in the day on Wednesday Drive mm. as a way of just going, we're just going to tell you about geeky stuff. Yeah, just the stuff we're interested in. And to be fair, listeners, Sophie founded it and asked, would you like to join? I want to give her credit where credit's due. I was merely present. <laughs> well, you kind of educated a few of our hosts about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, that's true. That's they were true. like, who is Wonder Woman? You're like, sit down, son. Sit down, <laughs> strap yourselves in, boys. You're going to care a lot about this movie and... <laughs> Three to four years. <laughs> and they did. They did. Now look at it. Blockbuster everywhere. And the main center. Ladies all up in this business. Right? But you are joining us here um, for our whole podcast. Podcast. The podcast. The whole of it. whole of it. I'm so excited to have you back on because it's been so long. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. The last time I was here was in 2017 Near or around Halloween for the release of my third book, It Came From The Deep. Mm. We had a good chat about mermen and doing Creature From The Black Lagoon remixes, if you will. (laughs) Well, you are here because you have a new book. I am here, yeah. My fourth book, The Witch Who Caught A Death, also came out on Halloween. Just can you guess what my favourite day of the year is? Um, Recurring theme. It's a recurring theme. Uh, But yeah, that came out Halloween 2018. It Came From The Deep was Halloween 2017. Slowly moved away from the January release dates that Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid 2 had. (laughs) Just push in for Halloween. Uh, You know, like Mariah Carey, who takes over the entire month of November and December, um, she grows stronger every Christmas season. That's what I'm trying to do with Halloween. Just bring it all back in for Halloween. Peak Scorpio season. That's what I'm after. (laughs) So The Witch Who Caught a Death. It is a spinoff from Who's Afraid. It is. Yes. My fourth book now set in that shared universe. It it follows a character called Corviosa von Klitzing, um, a.k.a. Casper, who's a woman we meet very briefly just for one scene in Who's Afraid 2 in a bar scene in the werewolf nightclub called Phases. And this is basically her origin story. She's someone I'd always had an origin story for. Her background was very succinct. And I got a chance to play with it, which is really awesome. I didn't expect that I was going to get that chance because I originally pitched The Witch Who Caught a Death back in 2014 when I sold Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid 2 as a package deal. And the response was lukewarm. Mm. They liked the idea, but uh, the type of story that it was and the type of heroine that it was, that is to say a bisexual uh, woman with a limb difference, wasn't as marketable to them in 2014 as it is now, I think. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it. but A lot it, has changed in four years. It has. I mean, we had Mad Max Fury Road, which changed everything. It changed a lot. And Furiosa is a character who has a very similar type of limb difference to Casper, the main character from my book. But there were just a lot more examples of more diverse stories being told in fiction, but also genre fiction. And suddenly something that might have seemed niche in 2014 wasn't so niche anymore. Mm. And I'm blessed because of that, because it meant that I had an opportunity to give Casper's story the full 100,000 words I think it deserves. <laughs> and um, yeah, I kind of had to seize on that opportunity because they cared about telling her story now. I don't know whether I would have gotten the green light in in another few years. Mm. You know, The Witcher Court of Death exists now and they wanted it to exist in 2017 and 2018. I don't know if I um, if I would have been given permission to do The Witcher Court of Death in 2020. Who knows how the world is changing. So I had a few other things that were up my sleeve and I just quietly had to put them on the back burner to um, to dust off this bad boy and get it out. 
Now, when people think mm, the witch record death, yes. Casper, yes. witch? No. No. <laughs> Casper is death. I mean, the title refers to the two main characters of this book, a witch and death, Casper, because she's someone who can communicate with and control the dead. She's um she's quite notorious and mysterious and elusive and sort of unexplained in the supernatural community. She has immense power, but nobody really quite understands how it works except for her and her twin brother. And they're given a bunch of different nicknames uh, by other members of the supernatural community, Casper, Creeper, Death, you know, the whole thing. Um, and so the title is something that if you've read the book, you're probably going to get a little bit more from as opposed to people who are just coming into it blank. But I kind of love it. It's a pretty sick title. There was like two mm-hmm. options. It was The Witcher Court of Death and um, The Ghost Who Walks with Witches, which I liked because it was kind of like a Sly Phantom reference in there <laughs> as well. Um, and so those are sort of the two that I came up with and um, the publishers liked The Witcher Court of Death. And I was a little bit more keen on that one as well. And so that's what we went with. Excellent. Now the witch in question. Can yes. we talk a bit about her? Yes, we can. I'm conscious of I'm conscious of the fact that most people at this point haven't read the book. So I wanna provide no spoilers, um, as in not giving away her name. But look, basically the story is this. Casper survives a horrific incident by a mysterious foe and in order to hunt them down and get vengeance, she needs to team up with the one other survivor, the one other person who has survived this mysterious foe. And I'm also careful to not give away the foe's name as well. (laughs) And that other person is a witch, but she is completely off the grid and completely off the radar. And the thing about witches in this universe is after the Middle Ages and the Hammer of Witches, Malicious, Malicious, oh my God, I can't even say it, Maliciousus, Melissiforum, you know what, (laughs) forget it. I had a lisp and a stutter as a child and trying to say the actual translation of the title in the original language has just been messing me up this entire two-week Australian book tour. But anyway. Damn that Latin. Look, freaking Latin. The <laughs> Latin, my Achilles heel. Uh, many people's Achilles heel. But anyway, point is, this book came out. It was a real book, Hammer of Witches, in the 14th century, by this guy who's like, yo, I hate women, would love to like persecute a bunch of them. And the Hammer of Witches was basically a guide on how to do that. Any woman who was too vocal or too shouty or had like was in other people's business or too sexual and made you feel things or had a mole on her shoulder or any sort of like weird thing. It was basically a blanket Ikea guide on how to exterminate a bunch of women um, and how to identify them as inverted commas, witches and werewolves. And in my supernatural universe, I take that as a pretty good jumping off point in terms of after the persecution of women, widespread women and witches and werewolves in the Middle Ages real witches decide that they're going underground. They're going to shrink themselves, make themselves smaller. They're going to destroy any text about themselves that was out there previously. They're going to spread misinformation about themselves and their powers and their abilities so that if anybody tries to exterminate them again or hunt them down again, they're going to have a really hard time because there's not a lot of accessible information about them. Witches' powers, coven structure, all that kind of thing is exclusively known by people who are within that community. So In my story, as Casper tries to hunt down this witch, she really struggles because she doesn't know anything about witches Mm. and most of what she does know is untrue and inaccurate. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, um, it's a really great, she's a really great vessel for the audience as well to be able to step into the world of witches. The thing I love about your books is even though they're urban fantasies, like magic, supernatural elements, it's also grounded in reality. For me... Best fantasy or the fantasy at least that I connect with the most has fantastical elements, sure, dragons, vampires, whatever, but the stuff that is real or can be grounded in reality is super authentic and super true to life because it juxtaposes them with the fantasy and makes it seem so much more fantastical. It makes it seem so much more special. So things that I'm inspired by, um, stuff like Buffy, for example, is a fantastic, fantastic case and instance of urban fantasy done so well. True Blood is another great example of that. Even X-Men to, in a way, I mean it's a comic book story but it's it's urban fantasy. Urban fantasy is a very genre, uh, very industry specific term I guess you could say. Mm. Essentially what it means is the world as you know it but with some wacky stuff going on. Harry Potter would be classified as an urban fantasy. It's more of a publishing term now than like a, you know, term that 
people and readers use. I think The Witcher Court of Death is just straight up classified as fantasy. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where who's... I think Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid 2 are either categorised as horror, paranormal romance or fantasy, depending on who the person <laughs> is. And it came from the deepest young adult fantasy. So it's all across the spectrum of stuff that I love. But yeah, that's really important to me is that the stuff that can be real feels very real. And it makes the the world building of the fantasy stuff a little bit more easier and a little bit more sharper in contrast to the stuff that people recognise from everyday life. Yeah, because for the first Who's Afraid, that was set in Dundee, Scotland, where you lived for ages. (laughs) And then Who's Afraid 2 was mainly Berlin, which is one of your favourite cities. One of my favourite cities. Love it. Yeah. And I just remember reading, because I haven't been to Dundee, but I have been to Berlin and just reading it going... Oh my god, I've been here! Like, yeah, oh my yeah, god, sure. yeah, I'm pretty sure I bought like a kebab off the street. Like, <laughs> what you're talking about? And so it feels so real in that regard. But the locations you've chosen for The Witcher Court of mm. Death, very real. Cornwall, yes, Cornwall, and not just Cornwall, Boss Castle in Cornwall, which is super specific. I mean, I'm all about the specifics, man. Who's Afraid, as you mentioned, was Dundee, which is Scotland's third biggest city. Unless you're Scottish, you probably have never been to Dundee and never heard of it. Um, that's kind of like how central and specific it is to Scottish knowledge and Scottish background. And, of course, New Zealand and the North Island, which mm. is my home country. Who's Afraid to Berlin and a tiny little bit in Wigtown in Scotland, which is Scotland's national book town, population like 300 people. Shout out Wigtown. <laughs> Love them. Um, and then it came from the deep Gold Coast again, very specific. Mm. And which you call to death, Berlin, and then Boss Castle, which is this tiny little town built between the crag of two cliffs uh, and like a river that cuts through it, little small collection of houses known for their pies. Boss Castle pies are like stocked worldwide, and you know there's a bunch of them in Australia. People love Boss Castle pies, but also known for flash floods they have. But <laughs> one of the main things, I guess, that they're prominent for is a really interesting hitch- history of witchcraft and magic and druid stones and witch bottles being found under people's houses. A really prominent witch used to cast spells on Tory politicians. And bless her. Bless her. And a museum <laughs> called the Boss Castle uh, Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, which is the largest collection of occult and supernatural artifacts in and the world. And it's real. And it's real. It's a real place. I went there. I loved it. I was like, can I live here? They were like, no, please leave. We close at five. Um, but it's a fantastic setting in terms of doing a witch story. I'm a big How believer. did you even discover it? I was going through Cornwall and just going to random places. My partner is from Cornwall. And so we were doing like a, a traveling, not a tra- I don't want to say like a traveling circus thing, but we were visiting a lot of family there. And I'd never been to Cornwall before. And places like Tintagel, which is just around the corner from Boss Castle, which is where allegedly um, King Arthur's castle was and Merlin's caves and that whole thing. There's just a lot of fascinating stuff there. And I'm really into literary tourism in terms of taking readers places I felt like they haven't been before, especially within the genre that I write in, Mm. because I feel like it's either London, LA, New York, or a small town where everybody knows each other's names and your dad's the sheriff kind of thing. (laughs) So taking people somewhere they haven't been is is what I'm all about. I have, in in all my books, like I need to be interested as well. I have... um, a rom-com that I'm shopping around at the moment that's set inside a pop culture convention that travels between Manchester and Edinburgh, which again, Edinburgh and Berlin are probably like head to head for my favorite cities in the world. Yeah, And it's sort of, as much as it's a love story between two people, it's also supposed to be a bit of a love letter to those cities. And so I find myself doing that, setting things in specific places or specific cities that I love. Mm. So nice. And I can't believe Boz Castle actually has a real witch museum. I know. You that must have wait. been heaven for you when oh, you walked in. I mean, listeners, if you have no idea what it's like or want to find out what it's like, there are a lot of YouTube videos shot inside the Boz Castle Museum of Magic and Witchcraft. I think they have... Um, I'm not sure if they have an official channel. I think they do because when I I took a bunch of my own videos and, and photos and stuff like that so I could reference them for description purposes and stuff, but... I think I was also looking for some specific things or just wanting to double check that I was describing something accurately. And I'm pretty sure they have their own YouTube channel where they host um, talks with different like witchcraft experts and like magic scholars and all this kind of thing. But it's amazing. They have a collection of Ouija boards from like haunted houses around the world and Amityville Amityville Horror and like (laughs) playing cards and all that kind of stuff. They have um, a beautiful display of witch bottles, which I'm endlessly fascinated by. 
a really interesting section on like witches and pop culture, which is really cool. And yeah, it's just, oh, and a really deep, dark, scary section on the persecution of witches. It, it, it sits under this like big wooden banister that just goes persecution. And you're like, chill, 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 chill. Uh, <laughs> you just walk under that and you just know nothing good's going to be on the si- other side. It's got, you know, witches' bridles, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Good use of that as a weapon in the book, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I try to incorporate a lot of... I mean, this is a thing with witch stuff. There's no universal depiction of witches. Um, witches differ from practical magic to charm to Sabrina to chilling adventures of Sabrina to the witch itself to the love witch, you know, to Roald Dahl's The Witches to Hocus Pocus. There hasn't necessarily been a universal depiction. So... That's part of the fun too, is that you get to make your own rules and build your own world. And then once you have those rules, you got to stick within them. But I tried to incorporate a lot of stuff, things that come from pop culture. Yes, definitely. Cause that's who I am as a person, mm. but also stuff that's based in real history and real law working in the hammer of witches. I'm not going to say the Latin word again because I'm so <laughs> traumatized. Um, working in that was just sort of the tip, working in actual torture devices that were used against women who were accused of being witches and working in torture methods that were used to persecute those women as well. It was all like trying to interweave it, you know, so that mm. if you are a fan of witch stuff that you are going to get a lot out of it, I hope. Well, I'd say you're more than a fan, Maria. You are a witch. <laughs> yeah, I'd identify as a witch for sure. I'm in a coven. <laughs> but I hear you actually successfully cursed someone when you were younger. Mm, well, legal, for legal reasons. No, look, I used to cast a lot of spells when I was younger. I was obsessed with the craft. It was one of the seminal movies of my childhood growing up. It would still be in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. We actually did uh, a Brisbane launch of The Witch Who Caught a Death at my friend's bar, Netherworld, and we did a screening of the craft, and it was just like everything I could have possibly dreamed. But <laughs> far following the craft, there was sort of this boom of witchcraft and witchcraft culture in pop culture, and it meant that spell books readily available. You could get basic spell supplies at a lot of different places. A few different witch shops popped up, and I began practicing quite young, and it was always casting spells against boys that I didn't like or I, who I thought were mean. Or there was some injustice, usually patriarchal related, <laughs> that I was trying to correct. And I was casting a spell against this boy that I used to race against. I used to do a lot of sport when I was younger. Um, and I cast a spell using my Kendall to break his ankle. And then the next day he got hit by a car. And my mom flipped her shit. She was like, that's it. No more spells. You're hurting people now. Not saying that I caused it whatsoever, but the timing was fantastic. And he was fine. He didn't die or anything. He's all good. He got married like a few weeks ago. He's gone on to live a great life. Doesn't know I cast a spell on him um, that may or may not have potentially. But he did break his ankle in the car crash. So it's just, <laughs> it maybe went too hard. I like Maria, your in, magic. I threw in, it's like baking, you know what I mean? You put in a little bit too much bicarb soda and mm-hmm. it all goes downhill. Yep. I did the witch equivalent of that. I was just trying to break his ankle and you know, nearly <laughs> killed the guy. But He's okay. He's fine. He's fine. My Ken dolls have all been retired. Everyone just chill out. <laughs> what would be your power if you could do witchy stuff now? I mean, it depends what realm we're talking mm. to be honest in your realm in the maria lewis mm. universe well see which bi- which abilities vary from which to which coven to coven this mm-hmm. uh, one of the rules of the of the world is that you have a base a, a specific power there are certain like um tenets of witchcraft that you can practice and blah 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 but every witch has a specific power and when she dies that power gets passed on to another witch um usually in the same coven sometimes not you don't choose who it goes on to but it kind of gets allocated like a an otherworldly sort of energy distribution device shall we say it's it's in like a supernatural you know um power surge fixer thing you know everyone's plugging into different portals but in my universe which is can do all sorts of things there are some that adept at working potions or any technical kind of magic the witch in my story is very good at any kind of um technical charm so spells hexes anything that she can brew up basically as well as a few on the spot sort of spells but then there are others that are good at creating magnetic fields, some that are gifted at connecting or controlling specific supernatural creatures like ghouls, some that can control the elements, control weather, can control tides, but just 
if two witches can control fire, for instance, one might be able to make things hot, the other might be able to create an entire inferno. So it depends on the witch. The powers can vary. Mm. In my universe... I mean, nobody has this power, but I think it'd be sick where you could put your hand on a book and consume every bit of knowledge that was in it and retain that information. Oh, that'd be a good power. Yeah. I th- Thank I you, energy really distribution. Cool. Yeah, thanks that. <laughs> thanks, supernatural uh, power surge protector. Like, that, that would be a power I've always wanted. But, you know, from X-Men, Nightcrawler's ability to just... Teleport? Yeah, Bamf, anywhere he needs to go is a fantastic gift. That would be amazing as well. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a good power. You could go anywhere, do anything you want. So I'm just going to nip off to Berlin, see you guys. <laughs> Seriously. Bounce. I'm going to Arthur's seat in Edinburgh. Chill to a chill. Be back by lunch. <laughs> good times. Yeah. It would be amazing. You could get yourself into get yourself in and out of so many tricky situations. Your favorite food in the world, you could just transport there instantly. Mm-hmm. Dominic Ansel Bakery in New York, I'd go there, get the milk and cookie, sh- cookie shot, and then just bounce. <laughs> It's the dream. That's the dream. Just bouncing all over eating. Just bounce. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would, a lot of people would probably use that power for good. I'd use it for global food tourism. I'm so down with you on that. I'm like, I just, you know, I feel like some really nice cheese. I'm just going to yeah. pop over to Europe. Wee oui, wee. And then come back with a bottle of wine. It's like, look what I found on the side. Perfect. Perfect. See? You'd be the best person to have at parties. But it does feel right now is the era of the witch. Mm. Um, what do you make of that? Well, there's a thing, a perception, I guess you could say, in any sort of business, whether it's show business, the publishing business, television business, film and TV business, whatever, comic business, any sort of business structure that trends come in seasons, which I've sort of always thought was bullshit. But, you know, there was an argument to be made circa 2006-ish that it was peak vampire season. Oh, Twilight Days. Twilight Days, yes. I rewatched it the other day. Oh, really? The movies? Oh, yeah. All of them? Or just no, one? just the first one. Okay. It was on TV and I was like, oh Catherine, my gosh. Catherine Hardwick did that one. I'll, I'll oh. ride or die for Catherine Hardwick. But like, it was just like, oh my God, this movie set the tone for all the vampire mm. shows in terms of how you acted in Supernatural. But also like the, the color palette for all those shows. The color palette be overdramatic and really <laughs> melodramatic. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Twilight was definitely one, but also Morganville Vampires mm-hmm. series, Vampire Academy, True Blood was yep. huge, Vampire Diaries. It was just like a thou- Byzantium, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive. There was just a thousand vampire things that popped up at that time. And then after that, around like say 2010, 2000. 11 nobody wanted anything to do with vampires nobody wanted a vampire book or a vampire show vampires were dead vampire season was over they're back in the coffin and then it was zombies it was walking dead it was warm bodies it was a bunch of other zombie stuff a zombie everything that was the hot thing zombie zombie zombies that's what everybody wanted and now we're at the down sort of the downhill bit of that when nobody wants to touch zombie stuff everyone's Zombie saturated or whatever. And now it's on to witches again. And witches were big, say, from like 1990 to maybe 97, 98. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the end of charm sort of was a downturn of that as well. But I've always kind of thought seasons were kind of, were quite rubbish because the first vampire season was in the late 1800s, right? Bram mm-hmm. Stoker's Dracula. Yep. Then we had the Universal Movie Monsters. So you had yep. Bella Lugosi as Dracula. And then we had like a big vampire section in the 80s, you know, yeah. David Bowie, like Lost Boys, Near Dark. I, I kind of think it's rubbish. Like if the story's good enough, it will find a way to punch through. We're having a witch moment right now, which is awesome because it means that hopefully there'll be there'll be an extra push um, from a business perspective for my novel because it's got witch in the title and it features, features witches quite prominently, plural. Um but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I pitched this book in 2014 and the response was, meh. And the book didn't change. The story didn't change. Nothing about it changed, but the interest and desire for it changed. Mm. It's like people came around to thinking that was a cool story, a cool idea. Um, the story didn't change itself. And so whatever that next thing is, I don't know. I'm still waiting to have a mainstream werewolf season, to be honest with you. So I'm waiting for that. I suppose that. it's always been in tandem with like vampires. Mm, not true. Except for Underworld. That was great. <laughs> that was great. That was great. But like we had a little bit. I thought it was really going to happen around Teen Wolf, Teen Wolf 2 and American oh, yeah. Werewolf in London time. Monster <laughs> Squad. Like I think the 80s was when it was getting its footing and then just didn't quite happen. 
well, there's always time. Yeah. But it seems sad that, you know, when these things happen, it's, as you mentioned, it's kind of done by seasons, not that you like that term, but it's like, and when people finally get fatigued, they're like, all right, time to move on. It's but like, I don't know why if the, can't they just do it all evenly? But I don't know if the audience gets fatigued or whether it's the industry gets fatigued. Mm. Because like I said, I don't think the, the trends thing is exactly accurate. Vampire season in the 90s was massive as well. Think of like, as vampire season was dying off in the 80s and they were saying it was over, Along comes the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series. Along comes Anne Rice and hers. Along comes an interview with a vampire. Along comes Buffy, the mm-hmm. movie and the TV series. It's just these seasons, I think, are kind of like an imaginary perception or terms that the industry uses to be able to sell things or categorize things. So we have the next vampire show, but it's Banshees or it's... It needs to be more Banshees. Selkies <laughs> or it's spirits or it's ghosts or it's whatever. It's a selling point. Yeah. But I think if the story is good enough, it will it will punch through even if it isn't zombie season. I mean, I get asked a lot about when I'm going to do a vampire story. Because uh, Can I just say I love your vampires and your books <laughs> that they are like the dirt of the supernatural kind of, world. Yeah, they're like the feral cats of the supernatural <laughs> universe because I knew that was going to be a thing. If I yeah. didn't explicitly state what kind of vampires they were in the very first book and in the first third of the first book, that was going to be a question that gets asked a lot. So in my world, uh, vampires are kind of like the feral cats of the supernatural universe. They are diseased, they're dying out, and they kind of just like feast on anything that's like corpses or anything that's like rotting or any sort of small marsupial, generally speaking. They kept in cages and trafficked on the black supernatural market. Um, And I had to do that because I knew it was going to be a question. And I get asked all the time, you know, are you going to put out a vampire book? Do you have a vampire story? And my answer is no, because I don't have a take on it yet. Maybe I will one day, but I feel like so so much of in, so many interesting vampire stories have been done. You know, yeah. I had something to say about werewolves and a way to use werewolves to mm-hmm. talk about um, growing up mixed race and to talk about feminism and the idea of female rage and the feminine grotesque. It came from the deep and mermen were were a thing that I used to talk about discovery and transition periods from one step of life into the next. It's about bridging that gap from when you stop being a teenager and have to make your way into adulthood and how difficult that can be. And ghosts and witches, which is essentially what The Witcher Quarter Death is about. It's a revenge story at its core, but it's also about monsters finding unity in each other and finding that shared link and women's strength in all the myriad of ways that's represented. If I had something as compelling, uh, like an equivalent of that that was as compelling for vampires, I would write that story in a heartbeat. If I had that for zombies, same thing. But I'm also a massive consumer of those types of stories and I've seen so many of them and I don't have something to say about that. Yeah. Other supernatural creatures, I mean, there's a glossary in the back. Oh, of the my God, I was just about to say, <laughs> I, like, stay up to 1 a.m. reading your book last night. Oh, amazing. I'm so sorry for the lack of... Well, look, at least we're both tired together because oh. I'm on the tail end of a two-and-a-half-week Oh, no, you tour, are 10 so. times more tired than I am. But I, I was just like, <laughs> I got to the glossary and then I read again the definition for vampire and you just, like, gave me the giggles <laughs> so much. Well, there's a lot of supernatural creatures in that glossary. Mm. Obviously, there's some that you know... Popular, Popularity-wise, um, werewolves, vampires, mermen. They're called, you know, they're called something different. No spoilers. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's all about linking those stories together and having this shared literary world. But most of the other supernatural creatures in there aren't things that are super common or aren't things that most people know in pop culture. Arachnia, for one, mm. um, which is like a type of transformative spider. It's a common thread in a lot of different cultural mythologies, uh, selkies, spirits, ghouls, goblins, all that kind of thing, um, banshees working their way in there. It, it's given me a lot of toys to play with. And you can't just, like, bust out your glossary in the first book. No. It's sort of like the reason why the MCU has worked in the DCEU hasn't worked is because Marvel earned their shared universe. They yep. worked their way up to it. Whereas DC was like, hey, we have goth Superman, therefore care about our shared universe now. They didn't earn it. No. Nah. And... When you like, you got to be a little bit patient. It's very hard because I'm an impatient person, but um, yeah, you got to take that in gradual steps. I think. Oh, absolutely. But does that mean MLU? MLU. I <laughs> know it's so stupid. Maria Lewis <laughs> Universe. Um, for those of you playing at home, take a <laughs> shot. No, it's too early to take a shot. But yeah, I don't know if there's a be- if somebody has a better 
title for it than that. That's what people have been calling it, and I'm happy to roll with that. So MLU it is. <laughs> it sounds punchy because the most popular version of a shared universe is the MCU. I would argue Universal Movie Monsters were the first cinematic shared universe, but MCU is what everybody knows, so let's roll with that. Yeah. Now I was talking to my colleague, and she's like, oh, my God, my son's going to be so devastated when all these heroes, like, leave the realm because he's literally grown up with it because yeah. he's been he's 10. Oh, they ain't ever leaving. <laughs> they ain't ever leaving. That's why they're bringing in younger people now. You get the first gen, which is, like, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans, Chris Pratt, Downey Jr., all those people, they transition out, and then it's Brie Larson, it's Tessa Thompson, it's Tom Holland. Those people are the ones that step in and fill fill the shoes. They're smart. They're breeding these universes like Kardashians, man. Like, as soon as one ages out, they'll just be filling them in with the next. Oh, that's, that is the best analogy I've heard in a long time. Um, speaking of MCU, there was really sad news this week. I know, Maria. Stan Lee. Stan the Man Lee. He died early this week, aged 95. And if you're not aware, um, he is the man who co-founded some of your favourite Marvel characters who you see on screen now. So we're talking Spider-Man, the X-Men, Fantastic Four, Hulk, Thor, Black Panther. That was him. But what a legacy. What a mad dog. I know, right? I met Stan once, very briefly. He said Excelsior to me, and that is, that's basically all you need to know about the story is that you met him once, we had one conversation, and he said Excelsior, and I was like, oh, my God. But, you know, he was an amazing man. I think it's testament to who he was as a person that so many people have Stan Lee's stories. He met so many people. Like, he in the, that last sort of span of 25 years, when he mm. was just on the con circuit permanently, was crazy. He, he's he was like seventy then, then that then, twenty years ago. Like that, that was then, and now and he was like still doing up to what like three four years ago. Two years ago at Sydney yeah. Supernova, he wow. did. Um, he he came out, and he was signing from ten in the morning yep. until eleven p.m. at night. He extended wow. his line to make sure that he could get to everybody. Amazing, which is crazy. I've never seen that kind of line and response and mania for anybody ever. And I just came off a tour that had two of the Vampire guys, Vampire Diaries guys. Um, I'm just <laughs> kidding. That's not a comparison. They, the fans for Vampire Diaries are immense though. But like even Hemsworth, when Chris Hemsworth was on the tour, it was just different. I'd never seen anything like when Stan Lee was on tour and mm. the amount of people that pushed through. And, you know, he could have cut that line off. He could have done anything. He's got to back up the next day and come back and do it again. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he... He pushed through those lines and tried to sign and talk to as many people as he could and get his photos with as many people as he could. But it's, he just sounds like such a wonderful person. Mm. And it's like, I'm so glad. And there's just the legacy he leaves behind of all these characters. I mean, Kevin Smith said it best on the latest episode of Fat Man Beyond, where, you know, we don't necessarily have the names of the people who wrote the Greek myths and legends and built that mythology, but... Stan Lee, we know his name, and he built our modern mythology. And there's not really anybody who has the legacy of storytelling like he does. Mm. Um, or anybody who was just so immense in what they were able to put out. You know, there's a 10-year stretch where he's physically writing comics and stuff himself and creating characters. And look what he came up with in that 10-year stretch from, I think it was like 61 to 73 or something. Yeah. And then he's overseeing and helping shepherd those those creations into a new medium, whether that be television or movies or whatever it is. I mean, he's he's incredible. That yeah. work, that work, that output is just prolific and amazing. And yes, it is very sad that he's no longer with us. I've never been in a world where Stanley hasn't been alive. Does that make sense? No, like, yeah. I've never been around when he hasn't been around. So that's very weird. But at the same time, 95, like what incredible innings. He was what nearly innings. 96. Um, his wife passed away just, just over a year ago. So, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, what a guy, man. What a guy. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have been sharing a lot of their photos mm. and thoughts about Stanley. And Army Hammer's been sharing a lot of his thoughts and feelings <sighs> about people sharing their thoughts and feelings. It's like, Army, stay in your lane. <laughs> he, he is all over the road. He's... In other people's lanes, left and freaking right, about everything. You know, it's just like, Dude. it's like if people are posting a selfie with Stan, it's because they want to commemorate how they met 
and what he meant to them. Look, Army Hammer's just... really committed to making people hate him one tweet at a time. So just <laughs> let him do his thing, guys. Let him do his thing. Oh, dear. But everyone is also sharing this like beautiful um, little moment where Stan had a little soapbox mm. and how he pretty much condemned the worst thing in this world isn't super villainy as you might see in my comic books, but it's bigotry and racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was outspoken against racism and homophobia and sexism so early Mm. in the 60s, you know, not when it was trendy to be against this stuff. He was using his platform to speak out against it and to tell those types of stories. And so early on, like in his career and in history, like in modern history, it's pretty freaking powerful. And somebody who always stood by his his conventions and stood by what he believed in. I think there's a lot of things people, other people could learn from that for sure. Absolutely. Well, Stan, we'll miss you and we'll see you in every Marvel movie. We'll see you forever. They apparently shot a bunch of his cameos back to back. So I think they've got, he's not in dark Phoenix though. Seven. Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a blessing. Um, I don't think anyone who's in dark Phoenix wants to be in dark Phoenix. No. Just, just quietly. I mean, get that paycheck, you know? Yep. <laughs> Just Chastain, take that paycheck and use oh, it to make that stupid dear. Matthew Newt movie you seem really committed to. Yeah. But there will be, he'll be around for at least the next year. He'll be around for the next few MCU movies, and that's pretty exciting. And, um, I mean, we have his characters, we have his work, and we have his legacy forever. Absolutely. Excelsior, spider friend. Excelsior. 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 You've turned into me in the Hammer of Riches and Latin. Maliciousus Melissiforum. Oh, I can't even say it. If I say it three times, Tony Todd's going to appear behind me and I'll get Candyman. Do it. No. (laughs) But it's been a big week in the geek world, aside from that very, very sad news. But we'll stick on the Marvel Mm. Disney stuff. Toy Story 4 let out two teasers this week. Mm. Um, so the first one has all your favourite toys mm. in a beautiful spin around um, and a brand new toy called Forky. Mm. Devastated, he's not really a toy. But the one I want to talk is the second one, mm. um, which has Key and Peel mm-hmm. just talking crap about Buzz Lightyear. Amazing. <laughs> I'm in. That's all I want, basically. That's all I want. I mean, Key and Peel have gone diff- very different cinematic routes. Um and it's nice to see them coming back together to talk a little bit of smack about Tim Allen, which is what everybody <laughs> wants in 2018. Let's oh, be honest. But, oh, their little impersonations of Buzz is just <sighs> gorgeous. But Are you excited for Toy Story 4? I am. I thought I left it behind with three because that made me cry so much. You mean Schindler's Toy Box? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Such a dark movie, man. Such so a dark, dark movie. Um, but I was like, oh, this one could be light. And it seems to be like they're moving on to a new generation. A lot. You know, The Incredibles 2 has really thrown me because I used to think that really belated sequels were never going to be good and didn't have a lot of merit. And The Incredibles 2 came out this year, 14 years after the original, and had no right to be as good as it is. And... <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm I'm in. Whatever they deliver, I'm in. I'm invested. Come at us, Disney Pixar. Let's do it. Give us your tears. <laughs> Give us all your tears. Um, but another thing that came out this week, completely through everyone, mm. I think, Detective Pikachu. Yes. Um, <laughs> did not expect that on a Tuesday morning. Uh, I didn't even know it was in development. I didn't even know it was in production. Very interesting. Look, here are my thoughts. It looks wacky. It looks fun in a like who framed Roger Rabbit kind of way. I think because it is Will Smith's oldest son playing the the main guy, I think that the dad mm-hmm. in the movie who we don't see who's missing might end up being Will Smith. <laughs> I think that will be something that will be really smart if they keep that under their hat yep. and save it um, for sort of like the last month push that they need that. I wish... I don't, I don't really care about Ryan Reynolds voicing Pikachu, but I wish... It sounded like Deadpool as Pikachu. I wish he had voice acted. What I wanted was Bradley Cooper as Rocket Raccoon, mm. where the voice acting is so substantial and actually acting that the actor disappears behind the character. That's what I would have wanted. Like, every time I watch Rocket Raccoon, I'm like, holy crap, that's Bradley it's Cooper. It's crazy to think about. And you know what? You still get to put Bradley Cooper's name on a poster. You still get to put Ryan Reynolds' name on a poster and in the trailer and in the marketing, but he could have done some voice acting as opposed to just his voice. Yeah. Um, that's kind of my only gripe, but I'll definitely see it because I think it looks funny and cool. 
Very Pikachu. Wigs me. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, yeah, they make sense, though. He is a mouse, though. Yeah, but in the animated series, like the anim- first animated Pokemon series, they have a little bit of texture. It's like hard to draw in 2D animation, but if you're doing it as like a 3D, like a, a three, a four-dimensional thing mm. where other characters can interact with and around the character, yeah, I think you've got to add a little bit of fur. Otherwise, it's going to come off as too flat visually and look True. weird juxtaposed with the yeah. rest of the universe. But plenty of um, familiar Pokemon, including a good old Charmander. Oh, my God. Mime. Mime. Bulbasaur. Psyduck. Oh, so good. Jigglypuff. Jigglypuff. Jigglypuff looks good. The hair, the quiff. The jiggly and the puff. I mean, it looks great. Oh, love, 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 love. It's just a little angry face. Like, yeah. that is jiggly. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised by this movie. When does it come out? I, I'm actually really curious to find out what the release date is for that. Because I could see them at the same time putting it into that Deadpool Kong Skull Island slot of like 10th. February or March. So it is out on the 10th of May in the US. Mm, just at the start of summer blockbuster season. Interesting, mm. interesting. Yeah. So fun times ahead. Yeah. Oh, we're going all over the place today, but uh, to Star Wars. Let's go Star Wars. Mm. Good old space opera. Mm. Mandalorian. Mm. So that is a spinoff that's happening on their streaming site, Disney Plus or whatever they're mm. calling it these yep. days. Um, so they've already said that Pedro Pascal mm-hmm. is in the cast, but yep. they've added another person, Gina Carano. I know, who is one of my all-time faves. I don't know if you knew this, how much I love Gina Carano, <laughs> but I'm obsessed. I was really keen on her playing Wonder Woman. There was a little bit of a fan push for that. Mm-hmm. She's in this movie called Haywire, which was one of her first sort of transition movies from a professional fighter into an actress. And it's like a quite low budget little Steven Soderbergh spy thriller, I guess you could say. And it's got her, it's got Channing Tatum, it's got um, bloody Michael Fassbender. It's got so many people in it. Like, your eyes will seriously bulge at all the different actors that are in it. It's such a good movie. Ewan McGregor's in it for two seconds. Actually, not two seconds. He's a pretty prominent character in it. But it's an amazing movie and she's incredible in it. I've never really seen such... I've never seen anything that's um, been so perfectly built around her, around to what her acting abilities are, but also what her physical capabilities are as both someone who was a professional fighter but can do a lot of interesting stunts. Yeah, because she is an MMA fighter. Yeah, she was. She's she's a really incredible fighter, and I love that they've added her to the cast. That makes me really excited. I think she's wonderful. I really do. I think she's. Um, I'm, a lot of people make that when anyone's bridges from fighter to actor, you, they start throwing up names of other people who have done that. And most of them are unsuc- like unsuccessful, if that makes sense. Mm. But she's in the category of The Rock to me, someone who can be really charming and magnetic on screen, but also bring a really unique physicality. Because she, in Deadpool, mm. she was just deadly. <laughs> she was wonderful. She's so good in Deadpool. She was also good in, I cannot remember which Fast and Furious movie it was. Six, I th- Six? think so. Sure. Facing off against uh, Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, I she was that. That Jason was great. Statham's Sidekick. sidekick, whatever, whatever. Like she it matters. Was. Luke Evans sidekick. Oh, oh look, it doesn't matter. There's been too many oh, of those. God. There's so many of them. There's so many. All I all I can remember is that The Rock kicked a torpedo at one point, and we've just if it doesn't go to space in the next movie, I don't know where else they're gonna take it. To be honest, I mean, cars and submarines. What next? You had Charlie Theron with like dreadlock light. So what are we what are we doing from here? What are we going from? Anyway, I'm super excited about that. Um, I. Uh, the streaming service really interests me because of a lot of things that they have in development there mm. and a lot of things they're giving legs. Um, but at the same time, this series I was meh about. I love John Favreau. I love Chef. Um, I love, obviously, the Iron Man movies. Mm. I love his entire back catalogue as well, Swingers, etc., etc. But with Taika Waititi on to direct at least a few episodes, Bryce Dallas Howard apparently is directing a few episodes. Now with Pedro and Gina, I'm like, I'm in, man. I'm really excited. They had Did, me when they said Taika was a director and I was like, done. They bye, are not going to have bye. any issues with people signing up to this service. No. You know, I'm still of the belief that I think... Um, with I'm annoyed I have to sign up to another service, but I am down for the well, service. Well, I think with Iron Fist and Luke Cage being cancelled in the same week, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up doing a Daughters of the Dragon Heroes for Hire series down the line mm. um, once they start spinning a profit on the other original series they have in development, which includes... A Loki series starring Tom Hiddleston, a Scarlet Witch series starring Elizabeth Olsen, 
all that kind of stuff. I heard, I'm not sure if it was announced or I heard rumors of a Jeremy Renner Hawkeye series. And I'm like, who wants that? Um, <laughs> give us Kate Bishop or nothing, you know? Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. They need to make a Young Avengers show. Yeah. Well, yeah. A live action one because they technically already have the animated version. That's true. Mm. Live action Young Avengers. Yeah. I'll be there. Yeah. I mean, they've done Runaways. That went okay. Yeah, that went fine. They're doing a second season. It went fine. They better. <laughs> one of the chicks actually from Halloween 2018 is mm. in it. Um, is in that Runaway series, and I really, really like her. I think she's wonderful. Yeah, no. I was like, yes, my favorite witch is finally on screen. That's your favorite. Oh, I love her. Nico Minoru, like you from Runaways. Totally, you could totally cosplay her. I probably could. You really could. Because <laughs> I was like, oh I'll my God, witch and Asian. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in. Thank you. Salt, salt, salt. Oh, man. What a time to be alive. Um, but speaking of space operas, mm. um, there is one perfect space opera. Okay. In- it's called Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> <laughs> you have said on Twitter how mm. it's perfect. You have no criticisms mm. of it Mm-mm. whatsoever. I want to say that I rode hard for this movie when it came out. Mm-hmm. I People are like catching up to it now and catching on to the trend and stuff. Well, it's not so much trend, but like saying how much they like this movie now and how it has merit and, oh, now all of a sudden we appreciate the Wazikowski siblings that they won't be making movies anymore. Yeah, because Jupiter Ascending yeah. being good. It has always been good, okay? Sure. All right. There might be roller skating space werewolves briefly for a period of time. I am so down with that. <laughs> I, it's a great movie. There's a lot of fantastic things about it. My one criticism of Jupiter Ascending, and I thought it, I was – thinking about this at the time when I watched it and it became even more clear when I was watching uh, Valerian City of a Thousand Planets was that Jupiter Ascending is essentially a young adult story. The main characters, the romance that they're playing out and how that works is like 19, 20, 21. That's Mm -hmm. the age the main character should have been. It's Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum who are in their 30s playing those roles. And so that part of it, I think, might have been some of the original disconnect that people had with it. But if those actors had been cast younger, then I think it might have connected a little bit more quickly. Watching Valerian, City of a Thousand Planets, those actors are too young. Dane DeHaan and Cara Evangeline, or however you say her name, they're too young for these discussions about marriage and commitment and lifelong responsibility. If you had literally switched the casts over, yeah. if you'd had older actors in Valerian and younger actors in Jupiter Ascending, it would have been perfect. But... I love Jupiter Ascending. It is a beautiful movie. It has some interesting, wide-reaching concepts. And I'm going to say it, probably one of my favorite movies from the Wazikowski siblings. Absolutely. Um, Like, when I saw it, because I, you know, I read all the reviews, like, oh, this is going to be bad. I'll give it a go. Yeah. And then I was just, like, glued. Just glued. It's a great movie. It is so much fun. It is so much fun. It's beautiful to look at. The costume Mm. design, the production design, the character design, even just the world building. Like, it seems like such a shame that this has only been... Because they make great worlds. We've seen it with Sensei. We've seen it with The Matrix. They Mm -hmm. can do some incredible world building. And it seems like such a shame that they do all this amazing groundwork in creating this universe. And then it gets left alone with this one movie. I think it's, oh, it's such a good movie. It's it was okay. in my top 10 for that year. And people <laughs> gave me so much crap for it at the time, but I stand by it, man. It's a great movie. Mm. It is a fun movie. And you're in luck, Maria. It's the world will live on as a ballet. Beautiful. I can see that. I can see it on stage. Will I go and see it? Probs not. Not the hugest <laughs> fan of ballet, I'll be honest with you. I like if I'm going to sit down and watch something for two hours, I appreciate, I have a lot of friends who are professional ballerinas, so I'm not talking smack, but it's a very <laughs> difficult profession, not for me. I'm not somebody who goes regularly to the ballet. That may shock you, considering that I have Powerpuff Girl tattoos. But <laughs> I can totally understand why you would want to adapt that into a ballet and why it would work well, on stage. Well, that score itself. The score is so good, but the costumes and the aesthetic and you can just see like a starry sheet kind of thing projected behind them. I think it will be beautiful. I can't wait to see it. Well, Eddie Redmayne's doing the rounds for Fantastic <laughs> Beast at the moment and he was giving flack saying he, like, you know, he did a terrible performance. He in... gives one of the best bad <laughs> villain performances, you know. Cheaper it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like Travolta, Battlefield Earth and like he's he's so good. Eric Banner in the Star, first Star Trek movie, like, 
I think that's a really great performance. I like those sort of like over-the-top villains. Eddie Redmayne's performance in that movie, though, is he makes some very interesting choices, shall we, shall we say? <laughs> choices. He speaks down here like this for a while, then all of a sudden he's up here, and you're like, oh, my God. Well, he was like, I spoke down there because my larynx had been torn out by a wolf man. Oh, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, chill. that was That was the backstory. That was the back- well, I, that would make sense if, if we'd known that. But it wasn't ever explained. It was never mentioned. <laughs> I mean, that's great backstory. I love it. And that makes sense in terms of Channing Tatum playing a roller skating space werewolf. Um, and the hostility then. But at the same time, you you probably need to know that. Yeah. Got into it. I, think I just he, thought he, I mean, it was it backstory, Eddie? Or was it a choice? Because <laughs> I felt like he made a choice there and you just got to go for it. You know? Absolutely. Well, I think one of the stories he put out was like, um, yeah, when one of the Wachowski siblings was like, be an accountant in this like particular mm. scene, he was like just yelling. He's like, I don't know why I'm yelling because mm. I my accountant is like the nicest, mildest mm. person you'll ever meet. Yeah. And at the same time, direction, be an accountant. Be an accountant. <laughs> they have a thing with accountants and like any kind of like tax or bureaucracy because they have that whole scene as well in Jupiter Ascending where they basically go to like the Galaxy DMV. Yeah. And yeah, I love that scene too. It's really good. I'm just a massive fan of that movie. It's a great movie. Respect. <laughs> Sean Bean's in it. Like, come on, man. Great. Well, he Gugu won't... Mabatha Roar, who I love. Oh, my God. She's so good. <laughs> well, Sean Bean won't be in the new Game of Thrones. Well, no. <laughs> but it was a nice retrospect they put because it's coming in April. Yeah. Cool. Final season. Gosh. It's been a while. But I'm already exhausted. <laughs> it's all anyone's going to be talking about for such a huge stretch of time. It, there's going to be so many think pieces about the think pieces. I'm... I'm just very tired. <laughs> I'm preemptively tired for April. <laughs> well, I just love it. George R. Martin says he can't finish the final books because of the pressure, mm. because the, the show has done so well mm. that he's like, I can't finish it because I get mental blocks because I don't know if it's going to reach the expectation mm. now that everyone's so obsessed mm. with the show. And it's like, gosh, how would that be as an author? Oh, I and it's like your final books as well and everyone's just holding on for it. I mean, I don't write stuff like he writes. His mm. worlds are massive and, you know, they'll you compare the size of his books to mine and it's like two or three of my books stacked back together. They're big tomes. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine, I couldn't even imagine how that would feel, especially once they started to catch up and then you'd feel that extra pressure. And, Mm. you know, he's someone that really is out there promoting stuff as well. Like he's always on the circuit, whether it's a pop culture circuit or he's out there on junkets promoting the TV series. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if he's, I assume he's going to finish the book series, but Willie, who knows? (laughs) Well, Maria, it's been wonderful having you co-host. It's been wonderful being here. It's been it's so great to be back. And, you know, Blake's been doing an amazing job uh, yeah, in my wake. I'm so yeah, proud. Yeah, and Talia Latia's been taken over from Blake since I he went. I have not met her yet, but I'm no, dying to because so, she seems oh. amazing. I follow her on Twitter. Big fan. We stand. <laughs> we stand an icon. <laughs> we do indeed. But The Witch Who Caught a Death is yes, out now. It is. It's nice, fat book. Do hug it. It's super fat. <laughs> P-H-A-T. It's so great. Maria, thank you again for joining us on thank Gaggle you of so Geeks. Thank you for having me. Uh, we'll be back with your usual Gaggle of Geeks next week with Tali. But till then, bye. Bye.